Dear colleagues, dear friends, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to this uh, new podcast of HEHAT. This is part of the HEHAT learning activity. My name is Cedric Hermans. I'm based in Brussels, Belgium. This podcast will be focused on the diagnosis and challenging diagnosis of von Willebrand disease. To run this podcast, uh, I will have two experts in the field, Luciano Baronchiani from Milano and Omit Saitsintase, also from uh, Milan. Dear colleagues, uh, hello to you. Hello, and thank you for having us here today. Uh, thank you for having me as well. Thank you, and th thank you to you for taking part in, in, this, in this podcast. So you um, prepared recently a very nice presentation about von Ullbrand disease. So maybe, Luciano, uh, maybe you, you could summarize uh, concisely what are the key um, messages, the key uh, guidelines that have recently been published about uh, that the diagnosis of von Willebrand disease. Okay, I will try. I just want to try to make a, a comment regarding the fact that uh, the, the viewer would have certainly notice a strong difference between uh, the first presentation regarding the guidelines and the second presentation, which present a very complicated case. And I want to stress the fact that the guideline has been prepared to deal with what are the uh, most common form of von Willebrand disease, because as you see in uh, the second presentation, uh, it may happen that things are more complicated than what uh, we usually uh, aspect them. I mean, we can not only have type 1, type 3, and 2A, 2B, 2M, and 2N, which are already uh, a complicated situation, but sometimes things are even more complicated. So I believe that the panel of the new joint guideline try to minimize the aspect, otherwise would have been such a long document to go through in detail and try to focus on the main classification, avoiding to go through all the uh, peculiar situation that may happen in, in this disease. And uh, I was looking also at the presentation of Professor Pevandi. She was pointing out that uh, basically the recommendation that the panel made are mainly just suggestion, but in three cases they were um, made a strong recommendation. And I think one uh, very important one was about uh, the classification of type one or low von Willebrand disease. I think it is a very clear that uh, uh, whenever a patient has uh, an abnormal bleeding and present value that are borderline or just below 50%, and we mean uh, von Willebrand antigen or von Willebrand platelet-dependent activity or even von Willebrand collagen binding, we should consider them as a factor as type one, of course, if the ratio of the activity to the antigen is normal. And another important uh, aspect that I do recommend is the use of the STH bat in alternative to any other questionnaire in order to establish if the patient which is uh, uh, the primary care evaluation should or should not perform further investigation. 
And by further investigation, they mean the three assay, the main three assay, which are the factor rate, von Willebrand factor, factor rate, coagulant activity, the von Willebrand factor antigen concentration, and the uh, risto factor, or I should say, the platelet-dependent von Willebrand factor activity that nowadays can be tested using also other assay, not just the risto factor. Actually, this is one of the points, even though this recommendation is not a, a recommendation, it's just a suggestion. They do suggest to use new assay in comparison to the old one. I guess I could go on for a bit, but uh, maybe you have some point that you would like to focus since the guideline has 11 points. I don't want to start to, to list all of them. If there is any particular issue that you think could be uh, complicated or uh, that should be clarified further? Well, maybe Luciano, uh, I think you clearly emphasize the importance of using algorithms. Uh, to make the diagnosis of von Willebrand disease. So could you comment on this, the importance of following the algorithm that, that have been proposed in the latest guidelines? Okay, so uh, I believe that uh, what is important is that laboratory that uh, are not dealing with von Willebrand disease as expert should be able to identify the potential patient who is affected with von Willebrand disease. Uh, but I think sometimes following algorithm, it can be uh, difficult, for example, even to establish if we are looking at type one or a type two, or actually in the wind study, they were showing that sometimes even the difference between a type one and a type three can be complicated because sometimes type one can be so uh, severe that uh, they are similar to type three. So I think algorithm should help the first step on the process of diagnosis. But I also believe that once, uh, if I am not an expert laboratory, once I establish that the patient has von Willebrand disease, uh, I should try to refer to center with, a, um, let's say more experience because as Omid will show you on some data, uh, sometimes even among very well classified type two, uh, you can find out that following the algorithm, you will come out with a diagnosis of type one. So I think those are really uh, the elementary step in order to try to identify uh, which type of umbilibrand disease the patient has. But I think really the main point is does my patient have von Willebrand disease? If yes, maybe we can ask uh, collaboration to other center, send some sample to be either plasma or DNA and try to confirm the diagnosis uh, and especially try to establish the correct diagnosis. Another question, you also emphasized in your presentation a specific type, which is type 1C. So could you elaborate a little bit on, you know, what are the key features of type 1C? Yes, definitely. Uh, I had a problem in the past with type 1C, talking with a colleague working on the Zimmerman program. I was asking, how can I identify them? And the answer was often, well, they have an increased clearance, which is true, but uh, many, as uh, Omid will show, 
many, many variants in von Wilber diseases, mainly type 2 variant have an increased clearance. The point is, and I recognize this aspect, if we have a type 1, which means is a patient that has a ratio activity to antigen, which is normal, it is important to recognize if this disease, this form of von Willebrand disease is due to an increased clearance. Because this is important, because DDVP maybe will not be the first choice for this patient if he's going to respond at first to the treatment with this uh, drug, but then it cannot uh, rely on the value because it's one variable factor is moving very quickly. So basically, 1C is a type 1 who uh, the main cause is due to an enhanced clearance. And as the panel report, it should be classified so, so that the physician may know which is the best way to treat the patient when he's in need. Thank you. Let's now move to the type 2. So we know that there are different types 2, and sometimes it's difficult to identify which specific type 2 the patients have. So in your view, and very quickly, what would be critical to do to uh, establish whether the patient has a type 2A, 2B, 2M? Uh, what's critical shortly? Well... For sure, the, the von Willebrand factor multimer analysis, which now has also, uh, uh, to say, uh, a version which is commercialized and can be uh, you know, used in many laboratories. Anyway, in alternative, of course, uh, it would be the collagen binding activity and the ratio of collagen binding activity to the antigen, which will give us some idea about the loss of high molecular weight multimer, typical of type 2A and typical of part of type 2B. Type 2M is the most, uh, let's say, uh, complicated, but I should say that if the, the von Willebrand factor activity, the platelet-dependent activity has been measured correctly and the ratio with the antigen is reduced, the fact that you may have a, a normal collagen binding to antigen ratio should suggest a diagnosis of type 2M. And of course, RIPA, which is uh, uh, not commercially available, it's the key sometimes to discern if you are looking at type 2A or a type 2B patient. Thank you. Uh, we won't have time to go in details uh, in part two of this module about vulnerable disease, but what you made there is that you shared uh, several cases, and you showed how all the tests could lead to a final diagnosis. Is there any specific comment? So I invite our audience to watch this part of the program to get the full picture, but are there any specific remarks or messages, uh, take-home messages that, would, that you would like to share regarding these cases? Well, yes, that sometimes, so we are talking about the second presentation, you know, the one regarding the uh, complicated bone bilibre disease uh, diagnosis. Uh, definitely, that is a diagnosis that was obtained by studying the family. Sometimes it's very difficult to understand if we are looking at a dominant a disease, a dominant form of the disease, a racist form of the disease, and uh, I believe that uh, 
to investigate not just the patient, but once the patient is identified, also to investigate the what we expect to be the obligated carrier or any relatives may really help to understand what's really going on, you know, because sometimes uh, things are more complicated than uh, what we may believe uh, starting with uh, the basic test. Thank you. Maybe what we could do now is to move to the, the last uh, part uh, presented by Omit. Omit, are you with us? Yes. So what, what you did, I think it's a very nice presentation too. You try to identify some highly specific aspects about von Willebrand disease that we should certainly take into account. So the, the, the first one uh, is a, a limitation in the Ristocetin-dependent cofactor activity assay. So could you elaborate a little bit on this? Um, definitely. So the, the first point I would like to emphasize is that when I wanted to do a literature review to choose the most proper um, and highly advanced uh, paper for the Pompilbrand disease, it was quite difficult job because we had many advanced, many advanced paper and a lot of advance has been done for Pompilbrand disease diagnosis, uh, pathophysiology, and also treatment. But this uh, few studies that I choose was mainly regarding different aspects of Bonville brand disease. For example, the, the first uh, study you mentioned about the um, limitation of using resusine cofactor activity for the diagnosis of Bonville brand disease was uh, published from Zimmerman. And in this study, they showed that uh, for patients that were suspected of having a type 1 or low Bonville brand factor levels, um, they found a, a difference between von Willebrand factor antigen and uh, resistant cofactor activity. And by doing further investigation using alternative assay, so-called GP1BM, they found that in this uh, special population, which they were 82 subjects, antigen was normal, whereas resistant cofactor was abnormal, main, mainly reduced. And also the GP1BM showing a normal result. So this was very critical um, to not making overdiagnosis of body brand disease. Because if um, we use only resuscitating cofactor in our lab, uh, that may create overdiagnosis of healthy population, mainly due to um, some polymorphies at position 1472, aspartic acid to histidine. Basically, this is the common polymorphism. Around 10 to 15 percent of the population have this poly polymorphism, especially in um, um, Black African Americans, which create a problem of resuscitating to bind to von Willebrand factor, which is not associated with bleeding. This is just a false, um, a positive test. This is interesting. You also uh, clearly emphasize the fact that uh, patients with low von Willebrand uh, also experience significant bleeding phenotype. So th this is important, but I would like to move to an, another aspect. And I, I know that you published on this is the Vonurant factor activity antigen ratio, that using this ratio could have some limitation, especially when uh, trying to identify the right cutoff. Uh, could you elaborate on this a little bit? But definitely. So in this study, we used a large cohort of 321 patients, well characterized for type 2 von Willebrand disease. And 
Historically, we use, were used to use a cutoff ratio of 0.6 to make a differential diagnosis of type 1 with normal ratio versus type 2 with abnormal ratio. And indeed, when we used this cutoff of 0.6, we had 54 patients were characterized to have type 2 that were had a ratio over 0.6. So, and then when we used a cutoff of 0.7, at least 34 cases of type 2 were misdiagnosed as type 1. So what we here try to emphasize on that, you should not always rely on this cutoff, but if you have access to further laboratory tests, such as multimer analysis, collagen binding, or genetic um, studies, this would help to make the correct diagnosis of this group of patients. Thank you. I think this is a very important piece of information. Another one, and I think you were involved in this great study that looked at the development of inhibitor in patients with type 3 vulnerable brain disease. And if I'm correct, that study was published earlier this year. A huge population, uh, more than 200 patients with type 3, which is quite unusual. So what were the main conclusions of that study? Well, um, actually, this study was, uh, as you mentioned, the largest cohort of type 3 Bondi-Brand disease uh, from Europe and from Iran. And they tried to investigate the prevalence of inhibitor development in patients with type 3. And by investigating this large cohort, they found that about 8.5% of patients do have anti-Bondi-Brand factor antibodies. And in 6% of this population, uh, they have inhibitor, it means that they have um, neutralizing antibody. And this is quite important because um, we needed uh, a large cohort of type 3 to establish this uh, prevalence of inhibitor. And they nicely showed that mainly those who developed inhibitor were homozygous for null allele. Basically, out of 14 patients, 11 had uh, homozygous null allele for one grand factor in patients. Thank you. And maybe a last um, topic that we could address together, uh, because you have uh, spent a lot of time and energy uh, looking at this, which is the, the enhanced uh, clearance of vulnerable factor in type 1 and type 2. So you, you have been uh, quite productive scientifically in this area. So what would be your key messages uh, for our audience regarding you know, the importance of clearance and how it could be affected by the type or subtype of von Willebrand disease? Well, originally the idea of enhanced von Willebrand factor clearance was developed for type 1 von Willebrand disease. And indeed, if we look at the literature, most of publications um, deal with type 1. Whereas in this study, we were also interested to look at type 2 to see whether we have enhanced clearance or not. And so we had this large cohort of over 200 type 2 von Willebrand disease and 50 type 1. And by using a cutoff of 1.6 for 4-peptide to antigen ratio, we found that enhanced clearance is indeed mostly prevalent in type 2. Uh, interestingly, we found 80% of type 2 have enhanced clearance, whereas this phenomenon was observed only in one-third of type 1. So the, the key message here was that the enhanced clearance is not limited to type 1, and indeed it is more frequent in type 2. And also we found that over 65 different mutations are associated with a shorter half-life of one factor, which might be 
useful, especially for clinicians when they do not have access to DDAVP trial, maybe by knowing the mutation could help to, to have an idea whether um, DDAVP could be a good therapy for patient or not. Thank you. Thank you, Omid. So, well, uh, I think we are close to the end uh, of this uh, podcast. I would like to thank both of you for providing us with a, a flavor of your three uh, great presentation that really provide a good overview of the recent advances in not only the guidelines, but also uh, some um, diagnostic uh, challenges uh, for vulnerable disease. So I hope you all enjoyed this podcast and I would invite you um, to watch the entire uh, program, the three presentation uh, lectures that are available on the EHAT uh, educational platform. Thank you to both of you and I wish you a great day or afternoon. Bye-bye. Thank you, bye. Thank you.